This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 21. And I tell this to senior executive teams all the time, the worst thing you can do is go lock yourselves in a conference room and decide amongst yourselves what the culture is today, because you're going to get it wrong. Things are filtered by the time it gets all the way up to the top. And that executive team often just does not know what some of the core issues are inside the organization unless they take the necessary steps to listen and understand the sentiment throughout the company. And that's not the annual engagement survey. That's just a point in time serve that companies spend way too much money on and it's incredibly ineffective. When it comes to culture change, why is it important to be thinking renovation and not transformation? What role do influencers, energizers, and detractors play in culture change? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Kevin Oakes, CEO and co-founder of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, or more commonly known as I4CP, which is the leading authority on next practices in human capital. Kevin's also the author of Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company, which is an Amazon bestseller and draws on data from one of the largest studies ever conducted on corporate culture. In his research and book, Kevin details how high-performance organizations such as Microsoft, T-Mobile, 3M, AbbVie, MasterCard, and many more have successfully changed organizational culture. Kevin is currently on the board of Performative, a performance improvement technology company, and is also on the advisory boards of Guild Education, EdCast, and Sanctuary. An entrepreneur at his core, Kevin was previously the founder and president of SumTotal Systems, which he helped create in 2003 by merging click to learn with Docian. What I've always appreciated about Kevin is his focus on using research to identify the human capital practices that drive higher performance and superior results. During our conversation, we discussed why defining culture is less important than taking action to change it, why he thinks every organization should have a kill the company committee and how it can drive innovation and culture change, why the first step in culture renovation is to deploy an effective listening strategy how to identify the influencers, energizers, and blockers that are critical to culture renovation, how onboarding programs designed to build relationships can supercharge your culture, and why he believes more chief people officers will come from outside the function in the future, and much more. Kevin, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you? Good, JP. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to have you on today to hear more about your book, your career, I4CP, let's jump into it. Probably some people know this about you, but you've had a very successful career as an entrepreneur. You founded and led several companies, including some total systems before co-founding I4CP. What led you to co-found I4CP and what was the original vision of the firm? So a lot of people probably don't know that I4CP is actually an old company that goes back several decades, but it used to be called the Human Resource Institute. And it was a nonprofit that was started by Rensis Lickert, who invented the Lickert scale and 
George Ordiorn, who really got his claim to fame through management by objective, you know, many, many years ago and was a, a core pioneer in, in human capital. And I got introduced to HRI in the 2006, 2007 timeframe. And along with my co-founder, Jay Jamrog, who was running HRI at the time, we started talking about relaunching it as the Institute for Corporate Productivity. They were doing some wonderful research, but we thought we could just make it a little bit more visible out in the marketplace and change a few things to, you know, to really bring that research into action. And so that's what we did in 2007. I, um, I bought the assets to the nonprofit and we relaunched it. Uh, and today we're significantly larger than we were back then, probably doing more HR research than anyone on the planet. But it's always with a business lens, JP, of what are high performing organizations doing differently? with their people practices versus low performing organizations. We have a, a very business definition of high performing. It's a better, you know, better revenue growth, market share, profitability, et cetera, and the competition. Well, I think it's one thing that really sets your organization apart and why so many HR leaders really rely on I4CP, not only for that research, the networking, understanding kind of what those practices look like, that are really impacting the business. So we're excited and appreciate you guys being in the marketplace and doing that. For you, Kevin, being an entrepreneur and executive, what has kept you in the HR space versus other areas? Oh, it's fun to be in HR right now, I think. Some might not agree with that. We've come a long way since I've been in the space. I can remember back when I first got involved in the learning space and then the broader human capital space, we're sort of the redheaded stepchild of, uh, of business, right? Not a lot of people paid attention to the HR community and there was still a bit of a personnel mindset. And today I think, um, HR has really come into its own and is viewed much more strategically, certainly in the better run companies much more strategically than it ever has before. And that goes across a lot of different areas of business. So, you know, Wall Street pays a lot more attention to the human capital space for sure. But I think boards and investors, as well as senior leaders in most companies, recognize how strategic HR should be in an organization. And if it's not, that's a big red flag for any company. So I, I love seeing how this industry has grown. And I just love being involved with companies and chief people officers who are using the human capital function to really better the business overall. Yeah, I agree. I think there's never been a better time to be in HR and to have more impact. And we continue to do that. I think the pandemic's accelerated some of that. Now we got to keep that going here as we get back to whatever the new normal is. And one reason why I wanted to have you on to the podcast is you wrote a really terrific book called Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Talk to us about what made you decide to write a book. Well, it was really based on research that my team had conducted. Culture has always been a fascination of mine. Going into so many different organizations over the years, you really get a sense of good cultures versus bad cultures when you work with so many different organizations. And what really, I think, intrigued our team is the subject of culture change. We meet a lot of CEOs and other senior executives who have a desire to make changes to their culture. While there's always been a lot written on culture out in the industry, it's always been a bit esoteric, meaning that CEOs understand the importance of culture. But when you look at some of that literature, it doesn't tell you how to change it. It just tells you how important it is and, and talks about how nuanced culture can be. And so what we set out to do with a research study was really look at companies that have successfully changed culture 
in order to try to see if there was some kind of blueprint or commonality that we could share with other companies and other, you know, CEOs to chief people officers that they could use in order to effectively have positive change to their own organization. The stat that really always jumped out to me was that of all the companies that set out to change their culture, only 15% succeed. Hmm. Uh, so that means 85% have some level of unsuccess in, ch- in changing their culture. But we dove into that 15% and came out with 18 action steps, as you mentioned, that the, is in the title of the book. And so the original study was very popular. And I was actually approached by a couple of publishers who said, you know what, that would be a great book. I hadn't thought about writing a book time. And they convinced me to write a book. And I'm glad I did because it's now being used by many Fortune 500 companies, smaller to mid-sized companies, unicorn companies, and even branches of the military, which really surprised me, have reached out to me because they're using the book to try to change the culture of the organization. Yeah, I'm glad you wrote the book as well. I think it's definitely something that everyone should read who's in HR. And I love the word renovation, right? There's all this, we always talk about transformation, but really can't transform a culture, you're going to have to renovate from the inside out. So I think the analogy is, is terrific. And I think you mentioned, let me go, culture is a buzzword, HR, and many senior leaders, we talk a lot about it. It's got these different definitions. How did you define culture in the book or in the research that your team did? And how should leaders in HR be defining culture overall? Yeah, I actually didn't define culture in the book. <laughs> and I did that on purpose because I agree with you, there are a lot of definitions and everybody thinks they inventing the most pithy definition for uh, culture. And so I just honestly stayed away from it. Everybody knows what it is. I don't think I need to come up with a new pithy definition. We did have a a definition when we sent out our original survey for the research we did. And that's that research involved over 7,000 organizations. So it's one of the largest studies ever done on culture. But in it, we just we said culture is the shared values and beliefs that help these understand how the organization functions and uh, provides them guidelines for their behaviors within the organization, which everybody seems to have some flavor of that definition. One that my co-founder Jay likes is culture is the way you think, act, and interact. Uh, we both also, it's not a great time to talk about Southwest Airlines, but we both resonated with Herb Kelleher's definition at Southwest is culture is what people do when no one's looking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think all of those are just ways to talk about culture, but it probably doesn't need a really intricate definition. Yeah, and I think that's one of the challenges with culture is that it it can be squishy, right? In your research, Kevin, and maybe with Jay and the team, are there other resources that you recommend for next-gen HR leaders who kind of want to raise their game when it comes to understanding culture and culture renovation? I spent a lot of time in the beginning of the book talking about examples of specific companies because we wanted this to be very practical for organizations and have real life stories of companies that have had some success. And one of the companies I focused on very early in the book is Microsoft, because I still to this day think the culture renovation that Satya Nadella and his team have implemented at Microsoft goes down as the most effective and best culture renovation that I've seen. And so I, I point people to Satya's book. I think Hit Refresh is a great um, inside look at what they did in order to very quickly turn the, the culture around at one of the most iconic and today the second most valuable company in the world and have just long lasting success with them. So Hit Refresh is a great one. And I continue to work with Microsoft and they, they get nervous when I talk about how, how great the culture change has been because 
they feel like they still have a lot of work to do and you're never done with culture change. But I still think they're doing a lot of things exactly the right way. I think Microsoft's a great example. And if you actually go to their website, you can actually look at, they've got their kind of their values, their culture book, which is really well laid out and talks about their growth mindset and some other areas. So I agree that in that book would be a good resource for folks. When I was reading your book, um, probably the second time preparing for our conversation today, but one of the ideas you had in there I loved, which was every company should have a kill the company committee. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what that means and why someone would do that. Yeah, we actually even did that at our little company. I recommend that to organizations as a way to think out of the box and try to be innovative within your business model and within the industry. And the idea is that most industries have unicorn companies, and those are companies that have a billion dollar or more valuation that are popping up left and right. And they all have something in common, and that's that they are trying to totally interrupt the business model of state industries and come up with you know new technologies or really just new ways of doing business in order to change that that model. Think of Uber and Lyft in the transportation industry or Airbnb in the hospitality industry. Just ideas that if you're a staid company in the industry, it wouldn't be immediate to you to come up with. And so the Kill the Company Committee is designed to be a small cross-functional team inside the organization that tries to think like a unicorn and tries to think about, hey, if we were going to put ourselves out of business, how would we do it? What would we do? Where would we attack? What are our weaknesses? And it's, a, I think, a great way for established organizations to just really get that mindset, innovative mentality in the organization to really try to think ahead and try to be a step ahead of some of the unicorns that are inevitably going to pop up in that market. It's a really great idea. And also, you're probably talking about what is holding us back from a culture perspective as well to not think as broadly as those unicorns are thinking. They're not held back by certain assumptions. Yeah. I mean, the classic example, and I, I'd highlight this in the book too, is Blockbuster Video, right? Blockbuster really did not see Netflix coming or didn't pay much attention to stream the video as early as they should have. They had an opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million, which is laughable today. And they laughed Netflix out of the room. They thought that valuation was ridiculous. And you know, we all know what happens afterwards. And I think it's just a lesson for most organizations. You can't sit on your laurels. The market is constantly changing. You have to change with it. And so today, CEOs, they want agile organizations. They want companies that don't fear change or, or look at change as a nuisance or a threat. They want an employee base that looks at change not only as normal, but as an opportunity. You know, when changes are happening in the marketplace, to figure out how are we going to take advantage of that you know, that change in our market. Those are the companies that survive long-term, not, not the Polaroids of the world or, you know, the acts of the world that, you know, really struggle with change in the market. Yeah, and that puts even more stress on the chief people officer and that HR team to be agile and to lead and be the tip of the spear on that culture renovation piece. Right. That's right. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit more about the book and the first phase of culture renovation's plan and I'm curious, in the planned phase, what actions matter more than others? In other words, if you were starting a culture innovation, where would you prioritize and what would you deprioritize? Yeah, and then let me back up just a second. You mentioned it earlier about the word renovation. We, we, we came around to that term 
kind of late in the research and we were using culture transformation as the umbrella in, in which we were operating. But as we started examining these successful companies, it became very clear that none of them transformed their culture. Instead, they very carefully renovated their culture by keeping what made them unique to begin with, keeping what was hard to replace, just like you would in an old house, and renovating in order to increase the future value of the organization, like you would with a, a renovating an old house. And so keeping with that theme, we came up with three phases for these 18 action steps. So plan, build, and maintain. And Plan is the one, is a phase that I think a lot of companies gloss over sometimes or, or skip through. You get very overzealous senior leadership teams, often the CEO is very anxious to get going and they want to dive right into building this new culture. But just like an old house, you can't go in and just start knocking down walls without a plan, without a blueprint, because, you know, ultimately you're going to take the whole thing down. And so that same analogy has worked in, in you know, many organizations as well. And the ones that took their time to plan did culture renovation quite well. And the first step, I think, is critically important, and that's develop and deploy a comprehensive listening strategy. Now, more organizations today than in the past are listening more closely to the workforce. And the pandemic really got this uh, happening in a lot of organizations where we're really trying to understand what is the employee sentiment. And I tell this to senior executive teams all the time. The worst thing you can do is go lock yourselves in a conference room and decide amongst yourselves what the culture is today, because you're going to get it wrong. Things are filtered by the time it gets all the way up to the top. And that executive team often just does not know what some of the core issues are inside the organization unless they take the necessary steps to listen and understand the, the sentiment throughout the company. And that's not the annual engagement survey. That's just a point in time serve that companies spend way too much money on and it's incredibly ineffective. What we're talking about with listening is ongoing listening. <clears throat> Sometimes that's pulse surveys that you're doing on a regular basis. I even highlighted Amazon asks a question a day of the workforce and incorporates uh, those answers into how they're listening to the issues in, in the company. So I think that's a step that you really can't skip. You've got to start with before you do anything to the culture. Yeah, if you don't have that, you really don't even know where the gaps are, you know, where the strengths are and how you can and can shift and what's going to matter, right, in terms of employee sentiment. Right. And so I, I want to highlight another step, though, in that plan phase. There, there are several good steps, but the one that I think draws a lot of ahas from people is identifying the influencers, energizers, and blockers inside the organization. I make a big point in the book, certainly at the beginning, that culture change really needs to be leader-led. It's very hard to change the culture of a company if you don't have the support of the CEO and senior leadership team. But they can't do it alone. They need the cooperation of the workforce and they need sort of a co-creation mentality to happen inside the organization to make culture change effective throughout the company. And the way you do that is identifying the influencers in the company. Every organization has influencers throughout. Um, and these are subject matter experts that people turn to for information and oftentimes just for energy, right? You, there are people in your life you turn to where you walk away from a conversation just more fired up than when you entered. It. And then there's the reverse. There are people you talk to who just kind of suck the life out. You want those influencers and energizers to really be the culture ambassadors in the organization. They're the ones who are going to influence others and 
help that culture change happen at the ground level. So they need to be under the tent, involved with the plans of culture change throughout the organization. And I've talked to several Fortune 500 companies that have identified these culture ambassadors. You know, some companies have hundreds of them spread throughout the world. And I've talked to these groups who are the people that are making this happen at the ground level. The way you understand who those influencers are is pretty important. We use a process called organizational network analysis, which has been around for a while, but not a lot of companies understand it. And it's looking at how does workflow or collaboration happen inside an organization and who are people turning to? Um, those, that's how you identify these, these influencers. If you ask senior leaders, they typically think in terms of the hierarchy and they will pick people sort of at the top of the hierarchy as the people who are the influencers. And that's generally not true. It's usually somebody who's buried in the hierarchy. Sometimes it's an introvert, not an extrovert. Uh, these are the people that others turn to. In organizational network analysis, through a series of surveys, you can also do this just by monitoring communication and collaboration channels like Teams or Slack or you know other channels. But I like the survey method a little bit better because it helps you understand who is providing energy to others and weeds out who's just sending around the latest funny meme or talking about weekend plans. That's going to uncover those hidden superstars inside the organization, which every company has. And it's just amazing to me how often they remain hidden inside the company. Yeah, organizational network analysis is a really powerful tool that I think a lot of companies you just aren't really there yet, really, because the expertise doesn't always reside in the company. You know, there's more and more, I think, organizations externally that can help companies get there. Thinking different about how you're bringing the change coalition, the renovation team, if you will, because is, is the renovation being done to you or with you is where you're going with that, right? How much are you right. involving everyone are you actually going where they want to go? Are you finding that energy, the sentiment that makes sense for the culture renovation? And then painting that compelling vision, I'm sure, to get there. So I really, I'm really glad you brought that up and really do recommend people get more into organizational network analysis. I've done that work in my past and it's terrific. Let's talk about the build phase. And the build phase, a lot of the recommendations are similar to what maybe someone would say are large-scale change management plan. How does the build phase differ in your mind from traditional change management? Yeah, I purposely tried to stay away from using change management in the book because I think there are associations that particularly senior leaders make around that term. It's been around for a long time. And uh, I wanted to put this into practical terms that you know, really this book is written for the CEO that they would understand. And so we in the build phase, we talk about the importance of clearly communicating that change is coming, painting a vision for the future, and then consciously collaborating or some of the steps in that in that phase. And I really like the painting the vision for the future section uh, because in the book, we buttressed some companies that did not do that well. And, and what happened to those organizations, Yahoo was one of them. And then other organizations that I think did a good job at involving what vision was. It's very common when you've got a change in regime or a new CEO coming in to blame the past. Uh, and when you blame the past, you're really blaming all the employees that were there that created that past and not doing a whole lot to get them focused on what really matters. And that's what's this new vision for the future. Again, Microsoft, I think that did that very well as Satya talked very openly about what we need to be looking for going forward, what we want to be going forward, rather than looking backwards and saying, here's what, you know, Bomber and the former regime got wrong. And here's how we're going to correct. 
So I think that's an important aspect, certainly from the CEO perspective. Collaboration becomes pretty important, particularly as you're establishing this co-creation mindset. Some companies have done culture hackathons inside their organization, where just like any hackathon, they got a number of employees together for a couple day time frame to openly brainstorm about what they can do differently in the organization going forward. So I think that was an important aspect of the build phase, as was just making sure that leaders are walking the talk. And we talked a lot about training leaders on the behaviors that are expected of them going. I know F5 was an organization that I highlighted in that section that I think has done a very good job at training leaders at all levels inside the organization, what the values are and what behaviors we expect of you. Employers are going to do what leaders do. They're not going to do what's written in a PowerPoint, you know, or what's framed on a wall. And so it's important to make sure those leaders are really mirroring the values that you've set out as an organization. Yeah. Tell us more about F5 and some of the behaviors that they were laying that out. How do they train or set the example of what the desired leadership behaviors were? Yeah. I loved um, working with Francois, the the CEO. He's just a really interesting guy, as well as Anna White, who's their their chief people officer and somebody that I present with and as a good friend on this subject, because I think they've done just a wonderful job at F5. Francois even told me, he's like, Kevin, I wasn't using the term culture renovation when I came in to try to change the culture. That's exactly what I was trying to do inside the organization. And getting the leaders on board with behaviors was a big part of it. They, um, they not only have formal training sessions for senior level, mid-level and frontline that I guess bring their leadership principles to life. They call them BF5, but they also on a regular basis, they coach each other. And so Francois is constantly working with leaders in the company and trying to coach them about their leadership principles and trying to bring those into real life saying, Hey, when you did this, I don't think it yeah, really met with that leadership principle that we have. Or, you know, on the flip side, we're just really trying to highlight the positive behavior that he's seen in the leaders. So I love what they're doing. In fact, Anna's going to be talking more about that at our annual conference in March. And I'm definitely looking forward to that because she's just a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great addition. A lot of companies, of course, set a vision, high level talk about what we're trying to do as a company, but maybe don't get all the way down to really the brass tacks of putting that in their 360 into their performance feedback process, right? Bringing coaching to life, reward and recognition around what those behaviors are. And if we're really trying to shift the culture, that's going to be really important to do. Yep, for sure. The last phase, which was maintain. And I thought this part of the book, which is really interesting, you just covered a lot of different topics that you know could maintain culture. And in my mind, I was thinking you talked about onboarding to relationships to leveraging employee affinity groups to increasing talent mobility. I was curious, what's your advice to next-gen HR leaders and how do you implement some of these recommendations to maintain culture? Yeah, it's important because it's easy to kind of drift back to the way things were if you don't put the effort into maintaining. And, and a lot of those steps in the maintain phase were related to talent. And we'll, you know, I think a lot of human capital professionals were, will relate to each of these steps. Onboarding was a good one. There's been a lot written and done with onboarding of what I think some of the most successful companies have done is to make onboarding all about relationships. And that's the part that I think a lot of companies miss. Onboarding too often is, you know, about tactics and about, um, you know, filling out the right forms and, you know, et cetera, and about just 
disseminating knowledge. What really makes new employees stick in an organization is did they early on develop the right relationships with subject matter experts and others who could further their career and where they can immediately provide value inside the organization. So that that's something that I think some of the most successful companies did. And when it comes to culture change, particularly those relationships became very important. We could do one hour webinars on each one of these steps in the maintain phase, JP. <laughs> but the one that I love talking about is telemobility, which I think has gotten a lot more play recently. I think for a lot of companies, you've got to ask yourself an honest question. When a manager has an opening on their team, is it easier for that manager to hire from external uh, or to hire internal. And equally, when an employee wants to make a change in their job or in their career, is it easier for them to leave and look for that externally or to explore that intern? And you know the answer for most companies, but when in some of the better companies, they have made internal mobility a natural practice that happens on a regular basis. And I think it's incredibly healthy, particularly when we talk about culture, to have people moving around the company that increases collaboration and communication, just understanding of the organization, reduces silos in the organization, furthers the career, certainly of your high potentials, you know, if you can get them moving around the organization. But almost always the problem is the manager. Most managers are natural talent porters. And I've been guilty of this in my career for sure where you've got people who you love and make you successful as a leader, you don't want them going anywhere. The best thing you can do for those individuals and for the organization, though, is get them moving around. And so as opposed to in some companies where coaching is viewed as you know a sin inside the organization, you've got to get talent mobility being a normal thing and reward and recognize managers that are great at doing it. And I love seeing this flip that gets this switch that gets flipped, I should say, with those talent hoarders. They suddenly become talent magnets when people recognize that, hey, this is a person who's going to keep my career moving, right? And has helped a lot of people, you know, really expand their career horizons inside the So that's one that I, I love talking about and it is not very widely used. There's probably less than 20% of companies have a formal talent mobility program, but the ones that do in our research, are always off the charts, high-performing organizations. Hmm. I think people want to have that career development support. And we've always talked about, hey, you own your career, which is a little bit of a cop-out of some organizations, right? Because we Sometimes, haven't figured it out. Yeah. But I think employee talent mobility has really kind of filled that gap. You know, if you've got a large enough talent pool, and if you don't, if you're a small organization, you can still make it easy to figure out a ways to promote those jobs internally before you go external. You can do that without having to, to get a big fancy system. A big part of that we talk about a lot these days is having a skills database. And so more and more organizations are recognizing we don't have a good handle on the skills that just exist within our organization. And so when a need comes up, if you have a skills database, you can immediately you know try to apply those skills to the problem or the open issue that you have. But without it, you're kind of shooting in the dark. Kevin, you've had so much time to work with incredible chief people officers who are doing cultural innovations. What are some of the things you're seeing in terms of the skills, the characteristics, the attributes that they're bringing to the table that really differentiate the best chief people officers and driving culture change? We actually just published a news report that we do every year. It's our 2023 priorities and predictions report. 
And in that, one of the predictions that we had for the coming year is that the chief people officers that will really succeed are those that have spent time outside of HR, you know, in other areas. And we've seen this in certain organizations where they've brought people to the HR function that served as a business leader elsewhere. And so I think that's going to be important for HR, the growth in HR and the growth in those chief people officers. But what I get really excited about is when I walk into a company and that CPO is in the inner circle around that CEO. You know, they're in the three or four person, you know, little cadre of people that that CEO really relies on going forward. When I see that, I can tell it's a healthy company and that's happening more and more, which is great to see. What's also happening more and more is we're getting human capital expertise on boards of directors, uh, particularly of larger public companies. I think a lot of those companies woke up certainly during the pandemic and looked around the table, said, you know, we've probably over-architected on financial acumen and business acumen. We didn't have enough human capital acumen here to help us through this time frame. So I'm seeing a lot of my friends who are either current or retired chief human resource officers get asked to be on boards of public companies uh, to provide that. And so I think that's a very positive sign for the profession overall. I agree. It's a really positive trend for chief people officers to be asked to be on the boards. Definitely need more of that. Kevin, final question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Uh, so just staying on brand here, um, <laughs> I think it's it's probably some combination of you know, strategy. Maybe we call it strategic culture. It's becoming incredibly obvious. And we just did a brand new study that we haven't released yet, JP. I'll make sure you get a, a early copy here of it. That's looking at the relationship between culture and financial performance. We looked at toxic cultures and et cetera. It's very, very clear that companies that have healthy cultures, we're calling them cult fit cultures under this culture fitness band, they are much more financially successful than companies that have poor cultures to a tune of 6x. So we have six times more high performing are those fit cultures. And I think that notion is going to you know, really become more prominent as we go forward. Uh, time will tell what happens to Twitter, for example, but it's been kind of surprising to see the dismantling of Twitter's culture, right? And that's a huge renovation project going forward, in my opinion. It'll be very obvious to a lot of CEOs, I think, in the future that if I want ultimate financial success, bottom line business impact, let me first focus on making sure that I've got a fit culture going forward. Because if you don't, it doesn't usually happen in the reverse. You don't usually have wild financial success. And then the culture follows, right? It's almost always the opposite. A fit culture. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, JP. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Kevin for sharing his insights on how to renovate your culture to higher levels of performance. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Daisy Dowling, who's an executive coach and lead expert on working parenthood. She's the founder and CEO of WorkParent, a coaching, education, and community-building firm for working parents and the organizations that employ them. She's also the author of Work Parent, a complete guide to succeeding on the job, staying true to yourself, and raising happy kids. 
In our conversation, Daisy and I will discuss her career from talent leader at companies like Goldman Sachs and Blackstone to her many insights on how to be a successful working parent in 2023. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.